Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage, or perhaps we should call it the 40 years in review, given what we're going to discuss. Nigel, you claim that we've reached an actual turning point in British politics when it comes to environmental policy, at least. I'm a little bit sceptical, but I'll let you put in your argument first. In the late 1980s, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, who of course was a scientist herself, a chemist, uh, became deeply alarmed about the link between carbon dioxide and temperature rising. And she became a believer. She even addressed the United Nations on that subject in 1989. Uh, Ever since then, into the major governments, through into Blair, uh, going green has become a completely accepted mantra by pretty much all political parties, um, virtually a total consensus. I mean, when the Climate Change Act was passed 20 years ago, three MPs opposed it, three out of 651, despite the fact it was going to be the most expensive piece of legislation on the British taxpayer in history. So without question, we've gone down this route. We've put huge amounts on people's electricity bills for 20 years. We finished up with the most expensive energy in the Western world. We have de-industrialized in the most astonishing way. And the great cry is, but look at us. We have reduced CO2 output more than any other country in the world. And it's true, we have. But we've done it by de-industrializing. And the commitment to net zero under, under Boris Johnson became almost fanatical. And perhaps the clearest example of that is the absolute ban on the sale of all petrol and diesel cars from 2030. Completely and utterly and totally unachievable. And what Sunak has done is to face reality. Now, some car makers overnight are screaming blue murder. Others are saying thank goodness for that. It all depends what investment plans they've made. But remember this. The real cost of going green has been picked up by those on middle and low incomes. You know, Lord Zach Goldsmith, who's saying it's a betrayal. But when you worth a couple of hundred million, you can buy a new Tesla. It's not a problem. It's not the same for ordinary working folk, particularly in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And many of the things that Sunak has said, I mean, the things I've been campaigning for very loudly, very strongly, and there's been a growing voice for this. I mean, I've noticed, you know, the editorial line in the sun has changed insignificantly in the last six months. People realise, you know, you ask Joe Public in a poll, do you want to save the world? Yeah. Do you want to pay for it? No. Um, and, and, you know, when you think that China's biggest energy company, one company, produces more carbon dioxide than the whole of the United Kingdom in a year, <laughs> you begin to ask yourself. And I think what happened over the weekend was significant and is being underreported. And it's a very important point, this. Further 3,000 jobs were lost at the weekend in the British steel industry. Why? Because we're getting rid of the coal blast furnaces. Coal blast furnaces, which are used to produce primary, I'm going to come back to that word, primary steel. We're going to go for electric arc, which needs far fewer people to operate. But all electric arc can do is to recycle secondhand steel. It can't produce primary steel. We were literally over the weekend got rid of 3,000 people, chucked another 500 million of subsidy in to get the electric arc going, and effectively said, strategically in future, 
the United Kingdom will not be a producer of primary steel, one of the most important strategic assets. And I think Sunak has looked at all of this. And, you know, he's not an idiot. He is not an idiot. Like, he's probably one of the cleverest prime ministers we've had for a very, very long time. So he's seen reality. And if you study the polling, it's really interesting. Basically, the affluent middle classes don't agree with what he did yesterday. But if you go to the 2019 conservative voters, it's 65%, 66% support measure after measure after measure. This politically is the boldest thing he's done to date as prime minister. It's the bravest thing he's done to date. Uh, he's going to face all sorts of protests at the Conservative Party conference. You know, I, I can't even imagine there'll be protesters outside the hall and inside the hall. But look, this is the first significant shift in four decades in our direction of travel on this. It puts us very much in line with Germany and other countries like that. Um, so it, it may not on the face of it, Nick, look that radical, but actually in terms of direction of travel and politics, it really is. The part of that I disagree with is whether it's significant or not. And I don't mean to belittle some of the changes that we've had, especially if you know, you're know you the one stuck having to put in these new boilers or if you're the one trying to buy that car and you can't afford the electric one. It, it all still feels to me like the country as a whole, the economy as a whole is, is sort of you know, heading towards the iceberg and Rishi Sunak has slightly adjusted, you know, the, the particular music that the orchestra is, orchestra is playing. It, it just doesn't feel like he's perceived as the actual issue. So my question to you is whether this is the first of many similar backdowns and changes in course, and that's why it's significant, or whether you think the policy as it stands now that it's been changed really does matter. I mean, if you're talking about the productivity problem that we've got, if you're talking about the 5.3 million people of working age who are sitting at home, uh, not working, some of them some of them disabled, I get, but a lot of them who should be working. Um, if you get to the heart of those problems, of the relative underperformance of the UK economy, if you're talking about the fact that in financial everything from financial services to fisheries, we've not diverged competitively from EU rules, and Starmer will tie us even closer to them. No, this doesn't solve any of those things. Uh, it doesn't solve any of those things. Uh, but it does It does give uh, the taxpayers of Britain a little bit of a break. And they're 20 points behind in the polls. It's a hell of a lot. And if the positioning at the next election, and this is bizarre, is... If you're hard up, vote Conservative. If you're rich, vote Labour. I mean, who can believe we're even having this conversation? But you can see how it's shaping up. So it doesn't solve our economic ills. I think the recent falls, steady continued falls in sterling, you know, point the way that there are genuine worries. And even though we've had 15 interest rate rises in a row, uh, none of that has really arrested uh, the sort of steady decline of sterling. No, it, it, in that sense, it isn't hugely radical, but politically, it's extremely interesting. And I think it's the first move back on these green targets, and I don't believe it's the last. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. My focus is more on what net zero would do to the UK economy, the fact that it's just not viable. And I want to read you a quick question from a reader. He's emailed this question a few times. He gets very annoyed when uh, on your GB News show, you don't ask net zero advocates where all the resources are going to come from to build all these windmills and this power storage and these solar panels. 
uh, which is something that you and I have covered in, in detail in the fleece. Yeah. Well, well, you see, I mean, I had, um, you know, I had, I had a couple of people on last night who, who are advocates of the green energy revolution, that somehow this is going to create a vast number of jobs. When I asked them both last night, what about the 3,000 steel workers laid off on Saturday? They have no answer. I mean, they simply have no answer. Look, you know, do we want our country to be at the cutting edge of new technology? Is it desirable to have renewable energy if it works without subsidy? Well, the answer, of course, is yes to all of those things. It's just that we're not at a point where any of this is practical. And, you know, if you're a manufacturer in America, uh, you know, the cost of gas to produce energy is half what it is in Britain. Half what it is in Britain. And they simply can't answer any of these questions. They still insist until they're blue in the face that the more wind farms we build, the better off we're going to be. Uh, the concept of battery storages, I've been hearing about it for 20 years. It doesn't yet work. You know, you need batteries the size of Birmingham to frankly power the country when the wind's not blowing. So, but that, that's so, the point. That, that's the real specific point, Nigel, isn't it? it so in order to address global warming, climate change, the whole world needs to get to some something close to net zero. But there isn't enough resources in the world to do that. We don't have enough copper and nickel and, and no. uh, lithium and so on so for everyone to do that. So the UK pursuing net zero, we might be able to scrounge up enough of the, these metals, but the world can't do it. So why would the UK do it, given that the world can't do it, given these well these resource constraints? Um, it's, it's sort of shooting yourself in the foot for a cause that inherently cannot be achieved because there's just not enough metal. Yeah, I mean... It- you know, it, 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 it's almost akin to economic unilateralism. That's the path that we've been on. And what you've seen yesterday is the first step back against that. That's why it's so significant. I mean, that's really the point that I'm making, Nick. And I, and I you know, uh, I, I think you'll hear more of these arguments. I think, I'm guessing that when the Sunday Times publish a poll, it'll show the Tories up 5%. I mean, I, I really think it will. It's one of those issues where it's become a religion. You know, God's gone, so we have to believe in something. Let's believe we're all going to die in three weeks' time unless we deindustrialize and drive electric cars. Uh, and this this absolute groupthink in Westminster, you know, where anyone that questions this is is called a denier. I mean, you know, that's where we've been. A whole new debate opened up yesterday. There's been huge pressure building from commentators on the sides, but it's now right at the heart of British political debate. Um and already you've seen Germany. You know, Germany ahead of us moved from 2030 to 2035 on electric cars. Um, you know, Right across Europe, there are now questions being asked about the timing of net zero. Uh, you know, And frankly, our relevance compared to Indonesia, India and China. So, so this is big stuff. Yes, perhaps the, the significance of, of Sunak's uh, speech was that he acknowledged that the net zero cause had some questionable figures to it, which means there may yet be further um, revisions to to UK government policy, and then that could go international, especially if it's politically accepted in the polls. Jump. Uh, let's move on to the, the threat of inflation and deflation. Uh, into twenty January of twenty twenty one, I think it was producer price indices in the UK and Europe and the US started to spike upwards suggesting that the the price of manufacturing things, of producing things, was costing companies more. And this led us and also others to warn about the corresponding consumer price inflation that might follow. Well, we've got now 
the producer price index in the UK and Germany in deflation, meaning the price of producing for companies in Germany and the UK is actually falling, uh, not just less, uh, less of an increase, but outright fall. Do you think that's a sign that we may see deflation or are you still worried about inflation? What if, I mean, you know, oil is $95 a barrel. Um, even to get anywhere near uh, 2035 targets, we're going to have to start mining all over the world on a scale, that's ever, as you've mentioned already in this podcast. So, and I, you know, I, I, I think there is still the possibility of the commodities are strong, go, you know, going ahead from here. Um, but I guess you've got a battle going on, haven't you? You've got a battle that in the West we're borrowing and we're still borrowing and printing money on an industrial scale, which does lead to monetary inflation. But China has a huge influence over all of our economies, and China is effectively in deflation. So this is a great battle uh, that is going on at the moment. Uh, my guess is from here, like, I don't feel absolutely sure on this, but my guess from here is that inflation will be relatively persistent because it is that disease of money that we've talked about so many times created by government. But you do get to a point when you start to think, well, the central bank, which was very slow to raise interest rates, uh, is now perhaps keeping them too high for too long because I think perhaps the risk of recession is greater than the risk of inflation going up. So I've kind of turned a bit that way. Uh, which brings us to, to my final question, which is about the amount of people whose mortgages are resetting. We've got new data from your favorite people in the world, the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, they've got almost half a million mortgage borrowers who are having their fixed deals expire in the next three months or the final three months of the year. And uh, next year, it's going to be a record amount. 1.6 million fixed rate mortgage deals are going to reset in 2024. All of these are going to be resetting to significantly higher interest rates. Are you getting worried about the continuing crisis in mortgage affordability? Of course, you know, and the housing market, the housing market is down 15%. If you want to sell a house, it's 15% down on where it was if you want to get a transaction completed. And clearly these pressures that you're talking about, you know, there may be another 10% down. There may be another 10% down. Um, if you look back to the really big dips that we've had in the, the British housing market, I'm thinking, you know, um, ERM, negative equity in the 90s, 08. Uh, when we get these falls of the UK housing market, 25%, effective 25%, seems to be about it. Um, and I still am of the view that the rise in population, the, the, the demand for places to live, the fact we're only on track this year to build 160,000 houses, which I think will be a big issue at the next election, a very, very big issue at the next election. If Labour are going to stick to the net zero targets, if Labour are going to stick to the European directives on nitrates, for example, they are going to struggle like crazy to get enough housing built, even to cope with inward flows of immigration, let alone the shortfall that we have already. And again, you see, this is again somewhere where you may well see uh, Sunak quite clear. And they've done a bit of it already in the last couple of weeks. But you may well see Sunak saying, look, you know, if my government gets re-elected, we really are going to build 300,000 houses. And we're not going to worry too much about European nitrate directives. So, so you, you know, once again, you see potential knock-on from what happened yesterday. Uh, but I, you know, I... I I'm still of the view 
that the middle, and I've got a strong view that the middle and lower end of the housing markets have quite a strong floor somewhere beneath here. And it might be 5% lower, 10% lower. And despite the problems of affordability and everything else, I still don't see it collapsing. I really don't. I think that would have made a great introduction to our Fleet Street letter issue for this month. Uh, but we can't give anything away. So, Nigel, thanks very much for joining us. And Deborah at home, thanks for watching. Well, thank you for watching. And I hope you agree it's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email.